0: Acts chapter 21 verses 15 through 27. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Menason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day... Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying, that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law." But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. When Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Amen. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that as we dig into it, that you would uh, guide me and help me to clearly uh, present uh, this material. Help us to interact with it and help us to uh, see you for who you are and your plans for us. I pray that this would be a time of worship, a time of sanctification of glad responses of our hearts to you, that uh, you would grant us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Max Lucado told a a very unique story. In fact, when I first read it, I thought, this sounds so much like an urban legend that I need to check it out. But Snopes does trace it back to 1943 Collier's uh, magazine, uh, article, but if you find it to be unbelievable, just treat it like a parable. Blanchard was, um, uh, uh, was waiting in Florida to be uh, deployed to fight in Europe, and while he was killing time there, he checked the book out of the library, and as he was reading it, he was really impressed with all of the neat notes that had been penciled into the margin. In fact, he was uh, so impressed with the thoughtfulness of the person and uh, with the character that these notes displayed, that he flipped to the front cover to see if he could figure out who owned this uh, book before, and he found that it was previously owned by a Miss Hollis Maynell. Well, he couldn't find any Hollis Maynell in the phone book uh, in the city that was at in in Florida, uh, but with a little bit of research with the library, figuring out where they had purchased the book from, uh, he discovered her address in New York City. Well, he wrote to her, and explained what the situation was and how he was intrigued with all of these uh, these notes. And he was wondering if she'd be willing to correspond with him about different subjects. She wrote back that she would indeed be interested in doing that. And then he was deployed to Europe. During the next 13 months, they corresponded a lot, and they really grew together. You could say they were kindred spirits, had thought similarly, had same visions, same passions about things. And he became more and more interested in meeting this uh, lady, and so when it was time for him to come back after 13 months, he uh, made an arrangement with her to meet for a date on uh, uh, about 7 o'clock in the evening, I think it was, and uh, that they were supposed to meet at the Grand Central Station. So she agreed to that. He wanted a picture of her because he wanted to make sure that he got the right lady, (laughs) And uh, she refused. She said, no, don't worry about it. I'll be wearing a red rose. You'll recognize me when I get there. And so he shows up at the uh, Grand Central Station. As a new crowd comes in, he stands up, and he's watching with great anticipation, and he is blown away by this beautiful young blonde that's looking at him, walking straight towards him. And uh, when she says, going my way, sailor, his heart's just a thumpin' until he realizes... She's not wearing the red rose, and behind this lady was the one that he had come to see, and uh, the woman that he had come to see with the red rose was not ugly, but she was way older than him. She had uh, graying hair, was significantly plumper than he had imagined and was definitely a striking contrast to the beautiful young blonde that had been walking toward him by this time had walked past him and was across the street. Let me read you Blanchard's remembrance of this meeting that would change his life. And this is as written by Max Lucado. There she stood. Her pale plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate My fingers gripped the small worn blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is all about, son, she answered, but the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she is waiting for you in a big restaurant across the street. (laughs) She said it is some kind of a test. (laughs) Well, Paul in this chapter faced another test in his life, in his mind's eye, he is really looking forward with eagerness to this meeting with the Jerusalem Council. He has been bringing this love offering to express the love of the Gentiles to the Jerusalem Church and the appreciation that they have brought the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. He's hoping that the Jerusalem Church will reciprocate this love. And uh, the reception was a bit disappointing. He had been anticipating this meeting with such high hopes and expectations that there was a letdown when the lady that he meets is the lady with the rose uh, rather than the gorgeous blonde in the green suit. I think you get the drift. But as it turns out, even though this was a disappointment, this became God's ticket for the most amazing opportunities for ministry to both Jew and Gentile that Paul has ever experienced to this point. He got his heart's desire. Now, he never did get the, the lady with the green suit, but he got something much better. What God was going to do in the remaining verses of this book was let Paul speak to greater numbers of Jews than he's ever spoken to before. Uh, He was going to be able to speak to governors and kings and soldiers. He was going to be able to win people from the Praetorian Guard and even establish a church in Caesar's household. Now, you can't make appointments with those kinds of people because the secretaries tend to screen them pretty Uh, Pretty well, but God was going to use this event to enable Paul to be a part of a plan to turn the world upside down. Now, he did that. It came because Paul was gracious with a less than gracious Jerusalem eldership. It came because Paul was willing to treat the lady with the red rose with respect and with humility. Now, some of you have been disappointed with relationships that you have had, uh, your own red rose uh, people. And sometimes you've maybe responded uh, sinfully, sometimes you've responded graciously like Paul did, but the way in which we respond to people can make a huge difference in whether we receive blessings being poured out into our lives. So today's sermon is on how to handle relational disappointments. Let's look first of all at what it was that Paul was hoping for. I believe that Paul was hoping for a reunion between the Jewish church and the Gentile church where both gloried in each other. This is what was his dream. This is what he wrote about a number of times. He preached about. But when Paul came to Jerusalem, he didn't meet his blonde dream. Now, it's true uh, the Paul's reception wasn't ugly, but neither was it what he had hoped for. The leaders in Jerusalem did not have the same kind of passion for Jew and Gentile uh, that he had, Uh, and they were definitely preoccupied with things that were not important with the ceremonial law. It was really not important. Now, let's look first at Paul's passion. So far in this book, we've seen that Paul was very passionate about evangelizing the Gentiles. He is, after all, the apostle to the Gentiles, but he has never lost his passion to see Israel saved. He, he, he longs to always be involved in Jewish evangelism, so every city he goes to, he preaches to the Jews first, and then he preaches to the Gentiles. This was his modus operandi all the way through. But as time went on, even with his two rare visits to Jerusalem, his heart became more and more burdened to see Israel saved. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And uh, earlier that year, he had written the book of Romans. Three chapters in here talking about this passion to see Israel saved. It's chapters 9 through 11. He ends that whole section with an incredible doxology. But I want you to look at uh, chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This was a passion that drove him. Take a look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Three times he's emphasizing, I'm not exaggerating at all about what I'm going to tell you. And the reason he does that is he thinks, people aren't going to believe me if I tell them that I wish I could go to hell so that my nation could be saved. That didn't seem possible and yet was a reality in Paul's life because God's Spirit had wrought this kind of a burden for the Jews, continuing to read that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He's opening up his heart, and he's saying, This is the kind of desire that I have for Jewish evangelism. This is how much I love them. Now, even if the Jews did not reciprocate that love, God had still enabled him to have this kind of a love for them. He preached to them. He wrote letters to them. He expressed his affection to them. And I give a couple of verses. I won't go over here to show he was looking forward to this trip. And of course, the purpose of the trip, as I've already mentioned, was a massive love offering from the Gentiles to help the poor uh, who were living in Jerusalem. Let me read you one verse. Acts 24, verse 17, Paul says, remembering this visit, he says this, Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Now, let's just try to get a, a little bit of a picture of how big this offering was. We're not told exactly how big it is, but commentators say, we can, we can sort of guess at this. It took 10 additional men, in addition to Paul, to bring this gift to Jerusalem. I've already covered the names of them, but let me review. The Macedonian churches were represented by Sopater, Aristarchus, and Secundus. The Galatian churches were represented by Gaius and Timothy, Asian churches were represented by Tychicus and Trophimus, and according to 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian churches were represented by Titus and two other unnamed brethren. Now, Timothy was half Jewish, but almost all of these guys are Gentiles, and I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this passage and just try to imagine what would these people be feeling like with the kind of... Uh, the kind of preoccupation with the ceremonial law and the kinds of reactions that they have to Paul. Uh, I, 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 we're going to be making a, a large deal about this as we go through this um, this passage. Now, Paul has not been to Jerusalem for quite a long time. All of the apostles by this time have left. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, is still here. But The only other leaders are just the the elders in the church. All of the apostles are gone. He's not met with these guys. He doesn't know what kind of a reception he's going to be uh, having. He's hoping for a blonde, but he really doesn't know what to expect. For example, in Romans 15, uh, verses 30 through 31, he asks the Roman church, please pray for me that these Jewish brothers will accept me, that they'll receive me. Let me read that for you. Now I beg you, brethren, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me that, here comes the two prayer requests, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and, here's the second prayer request, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I might come to you with joy. Okay, he's hoping this blind date is going to be a really good uh, date, but he really doesn't know what to expect from them. He's a bit nervous about that. They start to travel, and uh, it was probably about two days before, verse 15. After those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. That's a 65-mile trip. If you're walking, it'll take about three days. If you're going by horse, it'll be about two days. And I assume they're going by horse because of all of the gifts that they're bearing with them. So they probably arrive sometime late afternoon or early evening. And then Paul's reception initially it starts off fairly cordial. Verses sixteen through seventeen. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Maneson of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now there are some scholars who, because of the material we're going to be looking at in a little bit, they're very cynical about this, received them gladly. They say, yeah, they're, they're glad about receiving all of this huge amount of money. They could use the money. But if that's true, uh, Luke doesn't indicate so. He doesn't share the same uh, cynicism. It just says that the brothers received the delegation g- gladly when they arrived that evening. Now, it's not the congregation as a whole, as we're going to be seeing in a little bit. Next day, however, so in the evening, great, they've been received... Next day, there's a mixed reaction. First of all, there's an attempt at damage control by the leaders. Having Paul come has caused a little bit of anxiety, and rather than having a public meeting, verse 18 has the meeting privately with James and the elders. Verse 18 says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce points out James must have had a huge house to be able to accommodate 70 elders plus this entourage that, um, that Paul is bringing uh, with them. But the private meeting is needed because there's a lot of false rumors that have been circulating about Paul, and the congregation is really not too pleased with Paul. Uh, look for a hint at verse 22. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. <clears throat> so the plan is to get Paul to do something that will appease the Jewish congregation. Now, this must have been very disappointing uh, to Paul. Here is a delegation of 11 people who have sacrificed their time, their energies, their money in order to bless the Jewish congregation, and they say thank you, and almost the next words are, okay, we got some real problems with you. Here are some things that you got to do to fix things. You've caused us anxiety, and uh, we want you to fix it. Now, just to be fair to James, we do need to understand he had a very, very tough situation upon his hands. And I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background so that you can understand why they're feeling the way that they are. We're going to try to look at it from both people's perspectives. This was a time of intense Jewish nationalism, and uh, it was because of the abuses that the Romans had heaped upon them. A lot of Jewish anger. Against the Romans, if you read Josephus, you'll see that the mid 50s, which is the period of time right in here, uh, the mid 50s has seen a great deal of increase of Jewish hatred for Rome. It's seen one insurrection after another, where the Jews are are rising up in rebellion against the Romans, and one brutal suppression of the Jews after another by the procurator Felix. Um, There's a a great deal of anti-foreign feeling that has arisen, and any Jew that was suspected as having friends with a Gentile was looked at with suspicion during this period of time. What is Paul? I mean, he's a friend of the Gentiles big time, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And so I think what's going on here is that James is fearful that the members of his church have been influenced by these cultural feelings. Now, isn't it interesting how the church itself can be so influenced by the culture that is around it? This happens all the time. You see it all over the world, and it's something that's got to be resisted that you need to fight against. We need to be on guard. To what degree do we take on the political and the social and the financial and the other kinds of views that our culture have? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. Anyway, the church had become racially prejudiced because of horrible mistreatment at the hands of Felix, the Roman procurator, and to me it's a warning that we ought not to respond to huge groups of people because there's a few bad apples in the mix. In other words, we, sh- we should not be stereotyping people, saying, oh yeah, all blacks are this way, or all Hispanics are this way, or all Democrats are this way. They're individuals, right? We ought not to stereotype, and there may be patterns that are out there but we ought not to judge whole groups, and that was what was going on in Israel. The main point I'm bringing up here, though, is there was a reason why James is trying to do damage control. Uppermost in his mind is not, oh, I need to watch my words. How will my words negatively impact Paul or negatively impact the delegation? Frankly, it was uh, putting a little bit of pressure on James that they've even come here uh, it's not that he didn't value Paul. He values his ministry. He values the money. I mean, they could definitely use the money at that time. But James, as a typical leader, is feeling pressure from all sides. Now, of course, these guys are godly men. They want the kingdom to advance. In the last few years in Jerusalem, I doubt that that church has seen any outrage to the Gentiles. I mean, given the attitudes of the church, I doubt very much they've been successful in reaching the Gentiles. And so I'm sure that James and the others, they are thrilled to see that the kingdom of God is growing amongst the Gentiles out there. Uh, uh, In verse 19, Paul reports on the last years of sacrificial ministry and the way that God has caused the Gentile church to just explode. It says, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles uh, through his ministry. Now, some people assume... This is probably where the money changed hands and it was all counted out. might have been the evening before. We're really not told, but there's a lot of exciting things going on, but they're done in secret. It's hush-hush until uh, they can do some damage control. They want to do this before the congregation finds out. Third, commentaries point out that their reaction to the report was less than enthusiastic. Verse 20 says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, and then come complaints and further damage control and preoccupation with petty stuff that completely puts a damper on the enthusiasm. Now, I summarize that whole section with, yeah, that's cool, Paul, but. <laughs> and then they're, they're on to things that that are uppermost in their mind, that are weighing upon their mind. And frequently, godly people will be a disappointment to you and to me. And it's not that they're trying to be a disappointment. I think what's going on is they've got things weighing on their minds and they're not thinking about how their words maybe will impact uh, you. Godly people can sometimes talk past one another on the same subject because what's weighing on your mind is maybe different than what's weighing on my mind and we're thinking about other things as we're communicating. In a management book published last year, uh, Michael Patton used a great parable for this. He said, a man in a hot air balloon realized he was lost. He reduced altitude and spotted a woman below. He descended a bit more and shouted, excuse me, could you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The woman below replied, you're in a hot air balloon hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. You must be an engineer, said the balloonist. I am, replied the woman. How did you know? Well, answered the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information, and the fact is I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much help at all. If anything, you've delayed my trip. The woman below responded, you must be in management. I am, replied the balloonist. How did you know? Well, said the woman, you don't know where you are (laughs) or where you're going. You have risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. <laughs> you made a promise, which you have no idea how to keep, and you expect people beneath you to solve your problems. <laughs> the fact is, you were in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. <laughs> and I'm sure that's how Paul felt, you know? <laughs> He's come to help the financial church, I mean the Jerusalem church, with finances to express his love for them, but somehow things have suddenly got turned around where he's the problem. He's the reason for all of this tension in the Jerusalem church, and uh, I want to look at the myopia of these elders' plans. It's not as if the plans are wrong, but they do show short-sightedness, near-sightedness. Verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, there's two insulting things that have happened already. First, an implied lack of interest in what Paul is doing. Now, true, they glorify God, but many commentaries have pointed out the way Luke has crafted this Uh, He gives the clear impression they can hardly wait till Paul is finished so that they can say what is on their mind. They listen politely, but they're not really listening. And you can tell the whole time they're thinking about somebody, something else. Now, how many of you have talked to people like this? And it may be me that you've talked with, because I confess it is very easy for us to do this. You can be listening. But not really listening because you're thinking, what am I going to say next? And you're, you're thinking about that next thing. And the people can be utterly oblivious to it. I've been oblivious to it. My dear wife has gently told me, you know what? You know, you came across sort of like you weren't listening to those guests there. And, and I'm working on it, okay? But this is so easy for this to happen. And so I can identify with these Jerusalem elders. I can sympathize with where they're at. But it's still not great. In Philippians 2, 4, we see that Paul has learned how to avoid this. Here is his secret. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So if you're one of those people who listens, but you're not really listening, you're thinking about something else, uh, you might take Paul's advice uh, to heart here. Because what Paul is doing in this chapter is he's putting his own interests on the back burner And he really is passionately concerned about them and their needs and what their struggles are that they're going through. They may have made him feel bad, but he doesn't show it. A second area of myopia in verse 20 is the focus of James upon the myriads of Jews who are zealous for the ceremonial law. And it makes sense he's going to be focused on this because that's his calling. He was called to be ministering to the Jews, according to Galatians. Paul's called to the Gentiles. But the point is, this is not a meeting about James. This is a meeting about Paul. And so rather than considering the health of the church worldwide, James is only thinking about the health of his own congregation. And every one of us can fall into exactly the same rut. It's so easy to get ingrown and inwardly focused that we don't understand the way in which our speech can impact other people. Now, I'm not saying you can't talk about every pet topic that, you know, is uh, is out there. But I do want to encourage some of you to think about the things that you say, how it will impact others, like like visitors. Uh, I hear a, a discussion with great enthusiasm about things that, frankly, could chase away some visitors afterwards. You know what they are. Guns and gold and President B.O. and taxation and political views and immigration. There's a long list. And I'm not saying it's bad to discuss those things. I am thrilled that this church has such broad interests in talking about all kinds of stuff. But here's the point. Jerusalem can appreciate the Jerusalem talk. And there are some things that if we are so consumed by it, it could scare off people who don't know what we're talking about. It's a culture shock for them. I'm sure that if the Jerusalem elders were not more mature, they could have been scared off forever from ever visiting uh, the Jerusalem church again because it was a mongo culture shock for them to be seeing all of the things these guys see is so important. So again, it's not that we can't talk about any and every subject. I love it when we do those things. And thankfully, I see the same maturity that Paul had in many of you who are trying to figure out what are other people interested in talking about. You you dig into their lives and you ask questions and I think that's great. I love it. But it's just a hint that we we, we can very easily have the same culture shock to people from other churches because we are different. You know, our church is a bit different. Okay, let's move on. Point C shows that the elders took the false rumors in the congregation too seriously. Rather than confronting gossips, James tries to get Paul to solve the problem. And wonderfully, Paul is gracious and he goes along with it, even though I'm sure he was hurt to some degree. Verse 21, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, those are slanderous statements that ought to have been stopped at the source rather than making Paul go through this drama. First of all, did Paul tell the Jews to forsake Moses? And the answer is absolutely not. That's a ridiculous charge. Now, what's particularly troubling about this charge is that the word used for forsake Moses, forsake, means apostasy, to apostatize from Moses. The only other time in the New Testament it's used is in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and it's referring to a heretical falling away from the faith. So it's a very negative word to be used that he's an apostate from Moses. And Paul would say, no, I am submitting to Moses who said that he that there's coming Messiah. And he spoke about the temporary nature of the law. In fact, let me read you one verse. Acts 26, Paul said that he had been, quote, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said should come. Okay? He's in effect saying, everything I teach you can find in the Old Testament. I'm not saying anything new. It's all there in seed form. And so the first discouraging rumor is the claim that Paul has told all Jews you have to apostatize uh, from Moses. And it's especially discouraging that the elders have not dealt with this slander. The second false rumor must have made his heart sink just as much. Did Paul tell the Jews that they could not circumcise their babies? And again, the answer is absolutely not. He himself circumcised Timothy in Acts 16, verse 3. Why? Because there was no violation of biblical principle in that situation. There wasn't the kinds of things that he had been fighting about in Acts chapter 15. Let me give you another scripture. I think what happened is some Jews read Galatians, took it out of context, got ticked off, and they start spreading this rumor. But listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 19, which has just been written a few months before. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Paul didn't care if Jews circumcised their children. He said, fine, fine. You can keep your, but just don't impose your Jewish customs upon the Gentiles. That's what he is saying. And he didn't want them saying, number one, you can't be saved without circumcision. Number two, you're a second-class citizen if you don't get circumcised. That's what made Paul see red. That's what he was opposed to. And that had all been settled in Acts chapter 15. And to bring it up again is a little bit disheartening. And then verse 21 mentions the rumor that Paul was making Jews quit all Jewish customs. And again, this is so slanderous that it must have hurt Paul that James and the elders have even taken this charge from people seriously and uh, let the believers get away with such gossip. All the way through Acts, we see Paul loved Jewish customs. He just doesn't see them as law anymore. And so the Jewish leaders have insulted Paul in yet another way. They have failed to shut down congregational gossip about him. And secondly, They've made Paul jump through hoops to disprove this gossip rather than defending Paul. Where is the principle of you're innocent until you're proven guilty? Now, to be fair to James, we've got to look at this from both sides, right? To be fair to James, it is really hard to shut down gossip in a church because people rarely gossip in front of the elders, right? (laughs) This church has engaged in gossip from time to time, and it's really hard to put your finger on that. And this is why I've called every one of you, be ambassadors for peace. You know, shut down the gossip as soon as you find it. Now, I've listened. This is harder than you think. I've listened to gossip myself without rebuking it, and that's wrong, and I've repented of it. It's not like this is an easy thing, but let me give you some tips here on how we can help on this issue of gossip. First, if we are the subjects of gossip, we can develop a thick skin and be gracious like Paul was. You know, if you're just not offended that easily, that is a huge help in promoting fellowship. Second, if we are the perpetrators of gossip, we can remind ourselves that the gossip of the Jerusalem church ended up getting the Apostle Paul thrown into prison. Now, I don't think they intended that, but this was the unintended consequence. If it hadn't been for their gossip, James would not have said, we've got to have a radical solution here, and it's going to endanger your safety. But uh, Paul could you help us out here? It wouldn't have wouldn't have happened. And gossip so many times has unintended disastrous consequences. We need to remind ourselves of that. This is true even when the gossip is 100% truth. As the saying goes, a truth that's told with bad intent is worse than lies that men invent. So it's not enough to say, "Hey, this is true." it can still be incredibly damaging. This is why Matthew 18 says, you got something against your brother, go talk to him alone, alone. You don't bring anybody else in on it unless you can't solve it alone. But with uh, this congregation in Jerusalem, it wasn't truth, it was a half-truth that was being flung around. Nelson Mink said, half-truths are like half a brick. They can be thrown much farther. (laughs) And why can they be thrown farther? It's because they're somewhat believable. They've got half a truth in there. And I'm sure there was plenty of passages in Paul's epistles that they could have taken half a brick from, take it out of context, and say, Paul did say this, and throw it a lot further. And uh, we we just need to be very, very careful that we don't do that. Third, if we are the ones who listen to gossip, we should try to use those as teaching moments to teach other people, you know, that gossip is not a cool thing. If the gossip is not true, we can shut it down, say not only, hey, this is just not true. We ought not to be talking about this. Or if it is true, you can say to the person, if it's gossip, you can say, look, we shouldn't be talking about this. You need to go talk to that person yourself because I'm not part of the problem. I'm not part of the solution to the problem. And really, that's a definition of gossip if you're talking with me about that. Uh, What Kathy has on occasion done, and I've done this, and I know some of you others have done this as well is when people start gossiping, you feel like, man, I can't just, you know, rebuke him. Hey, you're a gossip. We should not do this. How do we do this graciously? And uh, some of you have, have, uh, have taken this tack, and it's usually worked, say, wow, if, if we're going to be a part of this, discussing this, we need to have an action plan. What should we do about this? We need to maybe go and talk with them. Well, that'll shut down gossip real quick if the people really are not interested in being involved. But that's a gracious way maybe of, of, uh, of dealing with it. But don't let George deal with gossip. Try to deal with it yourself. And then fourthly, if we are leaders, we ought not to let the bad attitudes of others dictate the way in which we run the church. If we do, we're going to constantly be reacting like the leaders in this church were reacting rather than being proactive leaders with vision. So I think this is a marvelous passage for very instructive for how we can deal with our own behavior. Can you see how there's nothing new under the sun? You might think, oh, wow, how can we have problems like this? Problems exist because we are sinners, right? We're, <laughs> we're problem people. And uh, the same solutions back then are solutions we can have today. Point D shows a fourth thing that must have been disappointing to Paul and the delegates. They can see from the speech in verses 22 through 24 that these elders are reacting to the congregation. They're taking steps from damage control rather than... For building relationships. Verse twenty two shows they know that the congregation is gonna demand a meeting. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. In effect they're saying, Hey Paul, we don't like this any better than you do, but we don't have control of this congregation, and they're, you know, a bunch of uh uh odd people and we just gotta do the best we can, and we need to react quickly, or they're gonna hear you're coming and everything bad is gonna break loose. Okay, verse 23 shows they've already hatched a plan, which to me shows they've been talking about Paul before Paul arrived. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Now, the phrase, do what we tell you, implies Paul and the elders have already discussed this problem of Paul, and he's just reporting on their conclusions and the, the phrase, we have for men, implies they've already come up with what the solution is going to be to this controversial Paul. And so you can see, they've had stuff weighing heavily upon their minds, and they can hardly wait for Paul to get over his speech. Verse 24, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses. Thanks a lot, guys. Not only am I part of the problem, I've got to pay for this out of my own pocket, I mean, you ought to pay for it, but no, he's got to pay for it out of his own pocket to make this thing seem credible for them. Now, Paul doesn't say any of that. He goes along with the plan, but I'm sure his heart was somewhat sinking. Continuing in verse 24, take them and be purified with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now, if four elders have already taken a Nazarite vow... Uh, it implies, and there's other scriptures that definitely indicate, that the Jewish church, the Messianic church back then, continued to keep the ceremonial law, just like Messianic congregations today, like a lot of the Jewish uh, cultural things. Now, what's confusing to many people is that this seems like it's a contradiction. Okay? It seems like Paul's epistles and Paul's behavior here are miles apart. They really aren't. Uh, they really are not miles apart. Paul was not doing anything that he had not already done countless times before. Uh, in chapter 18, he had taken a Nazarite vow just like they're doing right here. Earlier he'd gone and he had celebrated Pentecost or he had celebrated Passover. And there are other ways in which he was uh, uh, part and part of the culture of the Jews. And uh, I'll be sharing with you um, a scripture uh, in a bit. Well, maybe... Uh, yeah, I'll share that in, in, in just a little bit. It'll fit in a little bit later. But um, I'm going to read a scripture that says, "When Paul was trying to evangelize the Jews, he lived as one who was under the ceremonial law." So there was nothing sinful uh, whatsoever about what he was uh, what he was going to be uh, doing uh, here. What Paul was hostile to was not the ceremonial law. As a cultural expression, but to the ceremonial law as a way of salvation and the ceremonial law as imposed on the Gentiles. Now, of course, they make it a lot, a pill that's a lot easier to swallow by saying, hey, Paul, we agree with you, and we agree with the Acts 15 Council, verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, let me just remind you about that Acts 15 decision. This is not talking about three ceremonial laws and one moral law that the Gentiles can keep or have to keep. That's the way some interpret it. That would make nonsense of the Scripture. Let me explain why. If the only moral law that they had to keep was don't have sexual immorality, then is he saying, oh, it's okay to murder. It's okay to lie. It's okay to rob. It's okay to, you know, break all of the other commandments. Oh, don't commit sexual immorality. No, this is talking about four ceremonial laws from Leviticus 17 through 18. In fact, the same order that you find in Leviticus, you find being described here. Let me quickly go over those. First, eating stuff off for a sacrifice to idols, Leviticus 17, 7 through 9. Blood laws, Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. Eating things strangled, Leviticus 17, 13 through 16. And then there were ceremonial laws related to marriage and sex. Not moral, ceremonial laws related to marriage and sex in Leviticus 18, 1 through 19. So that was an issue. That was already settled in Acts chapter 15. And what they're letting Paul know is, hey, we don't want to in any way violate the spirit of Acts 15 counsel. We just want you to mollify the prejudice and the misunderstanding of Jews who feel like you're attacking their Jewishness and their culture. But you can see that these guys have gotten so ingrown, they don't see the big picture like Paul did. They're nearsighted and focused only on things that are temporary and really not that important. Commentators have pointed out it's not wrong for these Jews to keep ceremonial law. Paul did it himself on occasion. But they had lost sight of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In their preoccupation with a few cultural details, they've lost sight of the joy of the liberty that Christ has ushered us into. They've lost the joy of seeing Gentiles brought into the church. And most of all, for Paul, they've lost this vision of seeing Jew and Gentile as one body. That's his ideal. He had hoped that Acts 15 would have settled that, but it did not. And so Paul is going to Jerusalem looking for a gorgeous blonde in a green suit and his heart sinks as he sees that the Jerusalem church is a pudgy gray with swollen ankles, okay? This is the thing. Now, Paul does not offend. He does not offend this gray with the red rose. He values her. He knows his heart has been knit to the Jerusalem church. He decides there's a lot to love there anyway, but he accommodates her scruples. And that's what he does in verses 26 through 27. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And Lord willing, next time we'll look at the the arrest and the implications of that. But I, should, I just want to deal quickly with the criticism that a few people have brought that this was a sin. They claim that this was a sin for Paul to have accommodated these people. And most of my commentators say, exegetically, you cannot say that. You cannot say that. There was no sin on Paul's part by getting purified, cutting his hair, you know, paying for these Jewish nitpickers to have their, their sacrifices, letting the Jews be Jews. And in your outlines, I give five reasons why it was not a sin. First of all, Acts 15 was not abolishing all ceremonial law. God indicated that that would pass away all on its own. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, speaks in the present tense of the glory of the old covenant forms, and they were glorious. He was speaking of that as in the present tense beginning to pass away. In Hebrews 8, verse 13, the previous verse implies it hasn't passed away yet. Hebrews 8, 13, in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, he's saying that the laws are going to vanish away on their own. They're ready to vanish away. When? When the temple is destroyed. It would do away with most of those those uh, old covenant forms when that temple is destroyed in 70 AD. So, if Acts 15 was not doing away with all ceremonial laws for the Jews, what was it doing? Quickly, Let me review two things. First was prohibiting Jews from imposing Jewish customs on the Gentiles. Acts 15, verse 5. But when some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is to circumcise the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses, the Jerusalem council said, no, you cannot impose Mosaic customs on the Gentiles. If you Jews want to keep it, that's fine. Don't be imposing on the Gentiles. Second thing, Acts 15, verse 2, there were some who thought you can't be saved if you don't keep the ceremonial laws. Acts 15, verse 2, Um, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that made Paul see red. He was angry. He was mad. He was not going to give in one inch to that kind of legalism. And he said, no way. I'm going to fight this tooth and nail. There is none of this going to be done. He was just as opposed to circumcisional regeneration as he was to baptismal regeneration. He's saying we're saved by grace alone. That's what got his dander up. Now, it's not that you can't observe Passover or other Jewish customs. We do it from time to time as an educational thing, and Paul did it. You just can't be saved by it, and you can't impose it on the church membership. We think Hanukkah, Hanukkah is a cool holidays celebrate but it's not law, okay? That's the difference. Third, Paul had already said earlier in his ministry, to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. He's talking about the ceremonial law there, and he's saying when I'm winning Jews to Christ, I live under the ceremonial law. I keep all of those things. So obviously he has not changed his practice. He's consistent with his earlier practice. <clears throat> and I think we need to learn from how Paul did this. this the, the whole point that it's not a sin, I think we can learn from this because some of us too zealously guard our sacred rights and liberties and freedoms. There are times where it's okay to go along with what other people are doing for the sake of fellowship without ever compromising any principle, without ever involving yourself in sin. Paul models to us that this bending-over-backwards attitude when other people are inflexible is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's good for our pride to do that. The second reason why Paul did it was because of the deep humility that God had worked within this man and the ability of Paul to trust God in tough spots. Many a man or a woman would have been outraged by this point. They would have felt slighted, offended, hurt, because their pride had been stepped on. They could have said, hey, James, how come you guys only think about yourselves? Now, here's a few issues you ought to think about with the Gentiles. You know, he he could have said that. Uh, Some people would have chewed these elders out for their legalism, judgmentalism, negativity, lack of leadership. And in some ways, they would have been right to do so. Would Paul have been right to tell these guys to go take a hike? I think he could have justified it. He could have said, look, if you guys have not instructed your people on how to value the liberties that we have in Christ, that's your problem. You know, if you have, uh, don't have any control over the gossip that goes on in your congregation, don't expect me to bail you out. But he doesn't say that. And I find that very, very interesting. Paul does not say that. What do we make of that? Well, I'm sure Paul felt slighted and hurt to some degree, but he was not quick to defend his pride and his preferences. He sees things from the other person's perspective. He understands what's driving them. He realizes that they are really hurting themselves in many ways. And he just says, you know what? I'm more interested in their interest than my own. I'm just going to trust God in this situation. I like what D. I. Moody said, D.L. Moody. He said, trust in yourself, and you are doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends, and they will die and leave you. Trust in reputation, and some slanderous tongue may blast it, but trust in God and you are never to be confounded in time or in eternity. And so Paul did it, first of all, because it was not sin to do it. Secondly, because he had humility, he trusted God. And thirdly, Paul was more driven by a desire to bless others than he was by a desire to do things perfect, to do things, uh, you know, the better way. And perfectionists, boy, do they struggle with this one. They know the best way to edit a book, to run a picnic, to teach a child, to administrate a program. And when they see somebody else excitedly, you know, getting involved and doing a program the wrong way, quote, unquote, boy, they dive in with all four feet and they are there coaching and correcting and making sure this person conforms to the best way to do it, the way that I do it. And yet we don't see Paul doing that. Was Paul's way better? Absolutely. You read through his epistles and you realize Paul's way was much better than their way. But here's what Paul is thinking. Even though it's not Paul's preference, here's what Paul is thinking. He knows it's not wrong to do this. It's not going to be a sin for him to do this. He knows he doesn't need to defend his pride, secondly. Thirdly, he knows he can trust God to bring good out of this. And fourthly, he is genuinely interested in developing a relationship with these people, and he knows he needs to start where they're at. And... uh, So he says, why not? And I think he's a tremendous model for our own behavior. Of course, we know the rest of the story. God used James' advice to get Paul arrested and through that arrest to catapult him into ministry that was the most effective that he had ever had. Paul's gracious response made him grow. It made the Jerusalem church grow and it was used by God ultimately to bring the empire of Rome to begin to make it crumble to the gospel. And it was such an incredible privilege for Paul to be on the cutting edge of the fulfillment of Daniel 2's prophecy. Remember the, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel explains? You have this head of gold that represents Babylon. You've got the chest that is silver representing Medo-Persia. You've got the thighs of, of, uh, and belly of bronze, which represents Greece. And you've got the legs of clay and iron representing Rome. And he's saying, the kingdom of the Messiah is going to come in the time of Rome. And let me read you the the passage. Daniel 2, verse 34. It says, "...a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found." And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, when Daniel explains that image, he's saying, okay, this stone cut without hands, that's the messianic kingdom. It's going to impact the kingdoms of man at the time of Rome. It's going to gradually crush that kingdom, displace it, so that eventually grows not only into a great mountain, the kingdom of Christ will fill the earth so that finally no memory or desire for the former kingdoms is going to even come to people's minds. It's going to be like chaff that's driven away. And here's the cool thing. Paul was going to be right on the front of this kingdom smashing the kingdom of Rome. Now, there's different commentators who have pointed out that Luke, the way he frames this book is harking back to Daniel 2's vision of Rome crumbling to the gospel. It's the whole way that he constructs uh, this book. And so it was worth it. It was worth it for Paul. Over and over he had longed to go to Rome. And it reminds me of Augusta Bartholdi. In 1856, he engaged in his most uh, famous piece of art, but it was the the most difficult one that he had ever uh, tried to do. It was to build a lighthouse at the entrance to the Suez Canal between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. And he worked for 10 years on different models. And he'd build a model and he'd be designing this until he got it perfect, but he couldn't get any money to finance this. And when the Suez Canal was built without Bartholdi's uh, uh, lighthouse, he felt so disappointed. Ten years of work had gone down the drain. But then later, when the French wanted to provide a gift for America, they contacted Bartholdi again and his lighthouse idea was perfect. This robed lady uh, that stood higher than the, the Sphinx became the Statue of Liberty. And so what started out as a major disappointment ended up being a magnificent success for Bartholdi. Now, obviously, God doesn't guarantee that for unbelievers, does he? But he does guarantee that for believers. In Romans 8:28, he says, All things work together for good to those who love God. All things. That includes the disappointing relationships that you've had in your life, the ridiculous, silly decisions that other people have made. And so love the difficult people in your Jerusalem like Paul did. Be gracious with them. Value them. Trust that God can sanctify them in His own good time and watch God turn your rose from disappointment into fulfillment from non-existent lighthouses into statues of liberty. And may God receive the glory as we manifest and show forth the grace of God in our disappointing relationships. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this testimony of Paul and the marvelous grace that you wrought in him. We know that you didn't do that overnight because he had his testy times as well and his struggles with those who were disappointing relationships for him. But I thank you That over our lifetime, you can cause us to grow and grow. And that's our desire, Father, to never stop growing, to never stop pressing upward into the high calling that we have in Christ Jesus. Bless this congregation, Father, uh, with the kind of vision and the kind of peace uh, that Paul uh, showed forth. And may the disappointing relationships, whether they're within family, within our businesses, or wherever they may be, may uh, you turn these uh, from gold, from uh, ro- uh, roses, uh, into, into beauty, from uh, non-existent lighthouses into uh, beautiful statues of liberty. It is the liberty of Christ that we want to stand fast in. And uh, we uh, pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.